think we're ready to get started. Um, before we get going and do a little housekeeping, house cleaning rules, uh, as always, thank you for coming. We want to also thank Ruth for hosting. The best way you can show your thankfulness to them is leave a nice donation in the box for the kitchen staff. The ladies in the back always work hard to bring us this food. It's always really good. So that's a tangible way that you can show your support for them. Tangible way you show your support for moi. Uh, if you're, I've got some forms here. If you're looking to become, if you like this ministry, you like what we're doing, and you want to help it continue, um, it would be awesome if you want to partner with Disciple Dojo Ministries. And by doing that, you can partner for like $10 a month, $25 a month, 50 or 100 or 10 million, whatever you want to give. But, um, but there's information on how you can do that right here, which I'll leave on the table. And you get some stuff in return as well. $25 a month partners get a signed copy of each of my books. Uh, $50 a month partners get all of the DVD resources that I put out, and 100 a month partners get all of everything we've done and everything I ever will put out. So if you want to do that and jump on board, it would be awesome, and I would love it, and I can talk to you about it afterwards. But for now, we're right on time, so let's get started in Exodus. We are in chapter 23. We've been going through Exodus all year, literally all year since the beginning, and we just finished about four or five weeks in the covenant code. Israel came out of Egypt in the first half of Exodus, out of slavery, into salvation. Remember, God talked about their deliverance from Egypt was their salvation from Egypt, using the word for salvation that we think of when we think of salvation. So for people in the Bible, getting saved didn't mean saying a prayer at an altar when you were eight, or it didn't mean coming forward to the Billy Graham crusade. What it meant was getting delivered from slavery in Egypt into freedom as God's people. And so that's what uh, the, all the notions of saved and salvation carry over into the New Testament. They're all rooted in the Exodus. I was having lunch Sunday with a couple in my church that I'm good friends with, and we go out every couple of weeks and eat at a big Chinese buffet and just sit and talk about stuff. And, we were talking about Bible questions and Romans and all of these different things. And, and I just made an offhand comment. I said, well, everything about the gospel is rooted in the Exodus. The, the Exodus shapes the entire gospel narrative. And my friend was kind of like, I never thought of that. What do you mean? And so, you know, I talked to him about everything Jesus did in his ministry. You know, he came out of Egypt as a baby. Is that a coincidence? No. He crossed through the waters at his baptism. Well, when Israel crossed through the Red Sea, the prophets called that their baptism. Jesus didn't make that up. He picked that language up from the Exodus. Um, you know, 40 days in the wilderness, Israel, 40 years in the wilderness. There's so many parallels, and next week we'll see a huge parallel that hopefully will transform how you do communion and how you celebrate Easter every year. But this week, we're, we're at the tail end of the covenant code. So God has brought Israel out into freedom camp them around the base of Mount Sinai in modern northwest Saudi Arabia and they're they're spending gonna spend a year around the base of this mountain he's got he's provided water for them he's provided food for them every day in the form of manna and sometimes quail he's providing all their needs in the middle of the most barren God-forsaken wilderness that you can imagine and and he's providing for these tens of thousands of people in the middle of this. So while that's going on, Moses is up on the mountain 
and God descends on the mountain in fire, comes down onto the mountain, and the whole mountaintop is enveloped in fire and thunder and smoke. It's a theophany, if you want to be fancy. It's an appearance of God in visible manifest form. And God gives the ten words, the ten commandments, and the people are so shaken by it because they hear the voice of God that they say, Moses, you go tell us the rest. Just give us the cliff's notes because we don't want to stand here in the presence of this. It wasn't a nice, happy, fun setting. This was a terrifying setting where the God who had overthrown the most powerful empire in world history up until this time descended on this mountain in the middle of this desert. And these former slaves and mixed multitude of people are camped around the base of it, watching all of this. So in that, Moses gets the covenant code, and that's the last few chapters. Remember we said it's kind of like a wedding cake? At the top tier of the wedding cake is the little bride and groom, and that's the really nice commemorative part, and that's the important part that symbolizes everything. That's the Ten Commandments, and then the layer below that, that's the covenant code. Of, of, of explaining those Ten Commandments, showing how they're going to be lived out, and then the bottom layer, the, the base of it, will be the rest of the Torah, particularly Leviticus and Deuteronomy, which explains how that works out in even more settings. So that's how Israel's getting the law. They're not getting it like in one big swoop. You know, God doesn't say, here are 613 commandments. Have at it. He's revealing it to them piece by piece. Some of it, they won't even be revealed until the next generation in the book of Numbers. So they're not getting it all at once. They're living out this receiving of the law. And so we have to live that out with them by following through this narrative with them rather than just saying, okay, give me a summary. Give me a list of do's and don'ts. That's what everybody wants. But that's not what God gives. He gives the story of his involvement. So he's given all of these rules. He's given all these regulations. Last week we talked about, he showed them how you're gonna worship three times every year, the feast that you're gonna keep in the central sanctuary or around the uh, tabernacle, which we'll in get introduced to in a couple of weeks, that they're gonna come together and they're gonna celebrate these three feasts that celebrate these major events in the life of Israel um, as a nation. Then now, after he's given them all of the laws, all of the rules, then he's gonna give them a final um, promise of what he's going to do. So he's gonna say, this is the last part of this covenant section. This is the end of the deal. This is the now that I've told you all the ways that you, all the things that you have to do, here's what I'm going to do if you do those things. This covenant, here, here's a key to remember. When God made the promise with Abraham back in Genesis 15, and when he reaffirmed it all throughout Genesis 12, Genesis 15, he reaffirmed it in the different patriarch narratives. His promise to Abraham's seed that all the world would be saved through the seed of Abraham and that he would bless the seed of Abraham, all this stuff. Those were unconditional promises. There was no if-then relationship. It was, Abraham, here's what I'm going to do. End of sentence. Promises that God was going to keep. Now, as this unfolds, we're seeing this particular, uh, this particular manifestation of the seed of Abraham, this particular branch of Abraham's family tree, so to speak, the nation of Israel, God saying, that promise that I made to your ancestor Abraham, I'm going to use you as a key component in keeping that promise to reach and bless the world. However, for you people, Israel, it's going to be entirely conditional. The promise to Israel, the nation, is not the same as the promise to Abraham's offspring. 
The promise to Abraham's offspring was unconditional. God sealed it with his own blood, walking through the path of the animals. He was the only one that did it. There was no, Abraham, you do this, and then I'll do this. It was, this is going to happen. Now we're at a stage in Israel's history where God is extending the opportunity to part of the seed of Abraham, Israel as a nation, to carry on that promise through a very conditional covenant. And what I mean by that is he now gives them a role. They have to do something in order to fulfill this covenant promise to its fullest. If they don't, then the promise will, seems to, will seem to have failed. And that's the dilemma that the whole Old Testament is going to continue to raise. Because Israel is not going to keep their promise. They're going to go astray. And the question will always remain, how can God be faithful to Abraham's promises when Israel, the manifestation of that, has gone off the rails? How can God get the ship back on course? That'll be the, and, and the Old Testament won't end that. Won't, won't end with a resolution to that. It'll give some hints and glimpses. But that'll have to wait until the New Testament before we see how God actually does that and keeps his promise to Abraham and does it through this branch of Israel, this branch of Abraham's family known as Israel. So it's introducing all of these things, but the point that I want to emphasize is, and you're going to see this, is God's covenant to Israel. This is where popular imagination, we hear sermons and we listen to bits and pieces on TV and radio, and we just kind of lump all of God's Old Testament promises together into this generic, God chose the Jewish people, and they are chosen and saved, and it's, it's decreed, and God's promises will always come to fruition, and he can never turn his back, and da, da, da. And we don't actually separate out and parse out the centuries of development of those things and see how certain things were conditional, certain things were unconditional, and what do we do with all of that? So that's why we're walking through Exodus, and we're seeing it in its context and seeing its setting, and because the reading of the prophets, you know, if you ever tried to sit down, I'm going to read Obadiah, right? I know you've all said that, clearly. Um, you know, I'm going to I'm going to read Habakkuk today. I really want to see what Habakkuk has to say to me. You know, or even if you do, like, okay, I'm going to read Isaiah, a little more well known. When you sit down and read those books, if this story isn't intimate, if you aren't intimately familiar with these events, then those books don't really make a lot of sense. And you know they don't. No matter how spiritual you may think they are, you're not getting much out of reading them. You may get a memory verse here and a precious moments Hallmark card verse there, but you're not understanding. And you come away with this view of oh, Jeremiah is just so mean. You know, these prophets are so negative. They're so, wow, what's going on? It's because of not knowing this, because the prophets were always calling their readers and their listeners back to this to some very specific promises and very specific agreements that Israel made. So reading this not only makes light of the New Testament, but it also brings light to the Old Testament, the whole rest of the Old Testament, especially this section, verse 20. God says to Israel, see, or look, or behold, or whatever you want to say, behold, pay attention. I am sending an angel ahead of you to guard you along the way and bring you to the place I have prepared. Pay attention to him. Listen to what he says. Do not rebel against him. He will not forgive your rebellion since my name is in him. If you listen carefully to what he says and do all that I say, I will be an enemy to your enemies and will oppose those who oppose you. 
Now, what's this deal with an angel all of a sudden? Well, remember, we've met this angel multiple times since Genesis. This is not an angel like Michael or Gabriel or any of the other angels that are mentioned by name, which was very few, by the way. Most of what you know about angels is not the Bible. Um, this is the angel of the Lord. This is the angel, and, and as we've said, the better translation of that is the angel that is the Lord. This is the Lord in angel form going with his people. Now, angel, I say that word, and you immediately, you think wings, you think halos, harp, robe, fat baby. Uh, <laughs> is that true? You know, a cute little nickname, uh, a type of cake. You think of all of these things, none of that, none of that, zero of that, absolutely none of that has anything to do with biblical angels. Like, like not even any of that. So whenever you think of, when you think, I don't even like using the word angel because it's become such a stupid word in English. It has no meaning. We think of cutesy things and no, Victoria's Secrets. What the heck does Victoria's Secrets have to do with the angels? In scripture, angels, angelos, malak in Hebrew, it means messenger. It means presence, tangible, the, the person who delivers what needs to be said or done. Angels were the ones who rained down fire on Sodom and Gomorrah. Angels were the ones who killed all the firstborns in Egypt. It was the angel of the Lord. It was the angel that is the Lord. It was God in angel form, messenger form, tangible form. And that what God's saying here is, I will go with you. But God cannot dwell unmediated among sinful humanity. So his presence will be mediated. It will be, there will be a very careful structure set up so that God's direct angel presence can go with the people. And we'll see that in coming chapters. It'll be called the tabernacle. And there will be these rituals with the priesthood and these levels of cleanliness and these levels of purity and all of these things to safeguard the people from God's overwhelming, consuming holiness that's going to dwell among them. This is the same God that is burning the top of this mountain with fire and shaking the land with earthquake. And the people would rightly say, well, how can you go before us without this storm, this terrifying thing being what we see every day. And God's saying, I'm going to send my angel with you. I'm, there's, you can see it in every biblical scholar you pick up on Exodus will point this out. There's an alternation between I language and he language. He will do such and such. Listen to him. He will not forgive you. Who can forgive in the Bible? Only God. It's God himself. So when you see this angel of the Lord, you're seeing God's presence. My uh, Verse 22. If you listen carefully to what he says and do all that I say, there's the parallel. He says and I say it's the same thing. I will be an enemy to your enemies and will oppose those who oppose you. My angel will go ahead of you and bring you into the land of the Amorites, Hittites, Perizzites, Canaanites, Hivites, and Jebusites. And I will wipe them out. Sometimes it's the angel that's said to be doing it. Sometimes it's God that's said to be doing it. What's the deal? Yes, they're both true. God is the angel who will dwell in the midst of his people. The angel of the Lord is the angel that is the Lord. It's like saying the land of Egypt. It's not the land that's part of Egypt. It's the land that is Egypt. So it's the angel of the Lord. God's promising something that's revolutionary that no other people in history have experienced, which is the God of the universe living and dwelling in their midst 
and him being their king, their sovereign, their general, their warlord, their leader, their protector, all of that. That's what they get if they keep the covenant that he's just spent three chapters laying out. This is the if-then relationship. If they do all that, then this is what they get. Not salvation. They don't get salvation for doing the covenant. They've already been saved. Their salvation has is is, is already happened. This is his presence and his continuing and their continuing in his presence. This is preserving what God has already given as a free gift. And that's the paradox of salvation is you do nothing to earn it. But you can absolutely do all kinds of things to throw it away, to disregard it, to, to cut yourself off from it. But it stays there and it remains. And so God is 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 basically promising them his unmediate or his excuse me, his very mediated presence in a way that will protect them from everything that they could possibly fear. And remember the purpose. Now he mentions these people, and these are the people groups God originally mentioned to Abraham. 450 years before this, God told Abraham, your descendants are going to be slaves in a foreign land for 400 years. But after that, I'm going to bring them out into this land, the land of the Canaanites, the Hivites, the Perizzites, the Jebusites. And I'm going to do that because the sin of those people will have reached its full measure. There will come a point where the sin of those people will have become so abhorrent and disgusting in the eyes of God that the punishment for them will be just like the punishment in the days of Noah. They will be wiped out, wiped clean, driven out in the land. And we'll get to that later. And what does that mean? Does God really kill every single man, woman, and child? And actually the answer is no. There were many exceptions. God speaks in hyperbolic language, meaning that he will say all and all doesn't mean all. Remember, all the world came to Joseph to buy grain. That didn't mean Eskimos were paddling down to Joseph in Egypt to get grain to take back to the North Pole. All doesn't mean all, but it does mean all in the sense of the observer. So this is what God's saying, uh, I will wipe them out. Verse 24, do not bow down to their gods or worship them or follow their practices. You must demolish them and break their sacred stones to pieces. Worship Yahweh, your God, and his blessing will be on your food and on your water. I will take away sickness from among you, and none will miscarry or be barren in your land. I will fulfill your days, or NIV, I will give you a full lifespan. Why does he mention food and water and blessing and, and barrenness and miscarriage? Well, who are the gods that he's talking about? Remember this. They are going into Canaan. The Canaanites' gods were the fertility gods. There were many different ones, but the main ones were Baal, who we know as Baal, and his consort, Asherah. And Baal would impregnate Asherah, and that would then bring fertility to the land. So if you wanted your crops to grow, you would go worship at one of the high places or one of the sacred stone monuments dedicated to Baal and Asherah. And you would worship by engaging in explicit sexual acts with the shrine prostitute, with the Baal and Asherah in the mood. And it's like playing Marvin Gaye. They're ready to get it on. They get it on. The rains fall. Your crops grow. And the land is blessed. That's the worship of Canaanite gods. Now, sometimes that wasn't enough. You needed to appease them even more. You needed to offer them things like your flocks, your herds, your fruits, 
your grains, and if that wasn't enough, you offered them your children. You would take your child and you would sacrifice it to the gods to ensure that they would bring fertility so that the rest of your family would have enough food to eat and so that the towns would be blessed and the villages would be blessed. Canaanite worship was absolutely abhorrent. Think of every deviant sexual act you can think of and now mix in human child sacrifice into it. That's there's a reason that God seems so pissed off in the Bible about these practices. And it's because of the nature of them. It's not like they were just praying in Baal's name. God doesn't get that angry and wipe people out for that. It's not like they just didn't know God and, and you know, weren't doing the right rituals. They were doing practices that were utterly disgusting and that were completely debasing themselves and the land itself. And so God describes his sending them out of the land as the land vomiting them out. And he says to Israel all throughout Deuteronomy, do not do what they do. And he takes it even further and says, if you do what they do, then the land will vomit you out just like it did them. So God puts them the same obligation that they're under. Do not make covenants with them. Why? Because you're already in covenant with me. Do not worship their gods. Do not participate. Don't even allow their worship to exist in your territories because it will seduce your people to do that in addition to whatever worship they may give me. God's saying, don't do it. I will provide the rains. Baal is the god of the storm, but I am the god who created everything. So you don't need to pray to Baal. You don't need to cut yourselves and get blood running down to get him in a frenzy. You don't need to do sex acts with the temple prostitutes. You don't need to sacrifice your children. I provide the rains. I'm the one who sees whether you are fruitful and multiply or not. I'm the one who prevents things like barrenness and miscarrying. God's saying, trust me for all of those things. You're about to go into a land where everyone in that land for hundreds of years has said, this is how you secure health and wealth. This is how you secure a good life. And God's sending his people in and saying, that is 100% wrong. And you're going to show them that that's 100% wrong by who you are. Not going to even, not even a little bit. God is so intent on stamping out Canaanite idolatry. And we'll see that Israel uh, not only fails to stamp it out, but actually welcomes it and embraces it later in their history. So he says, though, he's continuing these promises of if then, verse 27 in addition to doing all the things of long life and health and blessing, verse 27, I will send my terror ahead of you and throw into confusion every nation you encounter. I will make all your enemies turn their backs and run. I will send the hornet ahead of you to drive the Hivites, Canaanites, and Hittites out of your way. Send the hornet is like a metaphor, most likely, like when God says the sword shall not leave your house or I will send the sword, and that's, we know that's a, a, a figure of speech for warfare or victory or whatever. The hornet is the same way. It's like a figure of speech of I will send you know, if a bunch of hornets are flying at you, what do you do? You don't duck and cover, you run. <laughs> that's all you can do. If you hit a hornet's nest, you run. Uh, that's that's the, the metaphor here, the, the imagery that God's using. I will send my hornet my hornet's nest, my, my fear, my terror. I will be the one that assures that these strong seemingly impregnable enemies flee as you enter this land. This is not promised that once you're in the land, you can go out and attack people and I'll be with you. God never promises that. What it's promising is 
Everything between you and this land that I'm bringing you into, I will take care of. I will cause to drive out. Uh, but I will, verse 29, this is key, but I will not drive them out in a single year because the land will become desolate and the wild animals too numerous for you. Little by little, I will drive them out before you until you have increased enough to take possession of the land. Now, this is where we looked back at the Exodus earlier. We talked about this the first few weeks and we kind of let it go. But the traditional view of the Exodus is that there are two million people that came out of Egypt wandering in the desert. And they'd say that because of the census data, and it has 600,000 fighting men, and so that means that if you add in women and children, it must be up around two million people. But we saw earlier how that word thousand doesn't always mean thousand, how it means clan, or tribe, or regiment. And so the text is really saying there were 600 regiments that came out of Egypt of fighting men and women and children. So all in all, the number is somewhere between maybe 50 and 100,000 is what we're looking at, uh, maybe even less, rather than the two million. So when you hear that, that's another one of those things to be aware of. This, this verse is a great one of those clues as to why we can say it's not two million people, that it's more like 50, 25 to 50, 100,000, because the land would have, two million people would be plenty to fill the land. They would be plenty to, to handle all of the everything, the crops and the harvest and everything. So if that were the case, but God specifically says that they're not numerous enough to fill the whole land. So what he's going to do is he's going, as he brings them in, he's going to enable them to drive out the Canaanites little by little so they can take the land, they can farm the land, they can pasture the land without it just being this desolate wasteland that weeds grow up and animals roam freely and there's, it's just this ghost town. He's going to drive them out little by little, giving them the land that has up until then been the Canaanites' possession. So this is a key, this is an important clue in terms of why people say, well, there, there weren't really two million people that came out of Egypt. Why, because that's unbelievable? Well, not really, it's because the text gives us good reason to believe that there were far, far less. So when you're thinking about Israel in the wilderness, think about, like, like we said, you know, think Bank of America Stadium or the Bobcats Arena full of people. That's about the number, somewhere in that range of what, what Israel would be. That's how Moses could talk to all of the people that's how it wasn't this big. Don't think of like the population of two Mecklenburg counties uh, wandering in the desert because the scripture doesn't give that. But he goes on to tell them, you know, I'll drive them out little by little until you've increased enough to take possession of the land. I will establish your borders from the Red Sea to the Sea of the Philistines. That's basically from the Gulf of Aqaba in the far south to the, Red, to the Mediterranean Sea where the Philistines lived along the coast. And from the desert to the river, from Sinai Desert up to the river Euphrates. I will hand over to you the people who live in the land and you will drive them out before you. Do not make a covenant with them or their gods. Do not let them live in your land or they will cause you to sin against me because the worship of their gods will certainly be a snare to you. Do not allow their religion to remain among you. Why? Because God is, is uh, you know, religiously racist or, or an ethnic favorite? No, we've already seen Israel as a mixed multitude. Not everybody that came out of Egypt was Hebrew. Many Egyptians came out. Many Hittites, many, um, you know, Kenizzites, many, all of these different people had come out of Egypt with Israel. God is talking about the people, the Canaanites, as the Canaanites. Now, there will be exceptions. We'll meet Canaanites who actually say, 
we're on the wrong side and we need to be on your side. And they'll be accepted. They'll be accepted. They'll get, they'll get books of the Bible named after them. God will say things like, do not allow a Moabite into the assembly of the Lord. And yet there's a whole book named after a Moabite. called Ruth, who was the great-grandmother, great-great-grandmother of King David, and the great-great-great-great-great-great-grandmother of Jesus. Wow. So it's not that God says, I don't want anything to do with these people because of who these people are. It's, I don't want you to have anything to do with these people because what their practices are. Meaning, if they abandon those practices, then they too can enter into the people of God. They can enter into the covenant people. It's the religion. It's the, 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 the blatant idolatry. It's the rampant sexual immorality. It's the child sacrifice. It's the, all of that stuff. That's what God is trying to keep his people uh, sealed off from. And so he's going to say no tolerance for it whatsoever. Zero tolerance policy. Uh, and that's the charge. If they do that, he's saying to them, if you do that, then I will do all the things that I promised to you as a nation. The promises that God makes to the nation of Israel were not unconditional. They were entirely conditional. The promise God made to the seed of Abraham that he would bless the world through their offspring, that was unconditional. So regardless of what Israel as a nation does, God's promise to Abraham will still carry through. It just may not involve them as the nation. And that's the tension that the Old Testament holds for the whole rest of its pages. So next week, they're going to have a what you would normally do after you make a covenant. Two people enter into a binding agreement. They do some sort of self-imprecatory oath where they say, you know, if, what I, if I break my end, may this happen to me. If, you know, cross my heart, hope to die, stick a needle in my eye. That's actually holdovers from ancient covenants where you would invoke a punishment on yourself if you broke the agreement. So they're going to do that, and then what you would do after that is the animal that was sacrificed and its blood used in the ritual somehow, then you would eat it together. It would be a covenant meal. So that's what we're going to see next week. There's going to be the people agreeing. They're going to actually say, yeah, we agree with all of this. We're going to do it. Then they'll have a covenant meal. Then God's going to move into the last part of Exodus, which will be now. Here's how you're going to worship with me in your presence. So we're out of time. Have a great week. There's some seconds if you want some. Come back next week. If you want to know how you can support this ministry, talk to me. I'll be happy to tell you. Otherwise... Have a great rest of the week.